Welcome to a special edition of the SI Planet Football Soccer Podcast. We have a special guest here today. His name is Jeremy Schapp. He is the terrific reporter for ESPN, who, among many, many other things, has recently done an hour-long look for E60 at Sepp Blatter, the FIFA president, 79 years old, who is about to win his fifth four-year term as FIFA president on May 29th. Very controversial figure, most powerful figure in sports, many think. And uh, a couple quick things before we start with Jeremy here. This can be seen again on ESPN2 at, on Wednesday, May 20th, 11 p.m. Pacific, and on ABC, Saturday, May 23rd at 3 p.m. Eastern. And it's also available online. If you go to my Twitter feed, Grant Wall, you can see all five parts that are available. Jeremy Schapp, thanks for joining me. It's a pleasure, sir, to be here. I noticed that you're from Kansas City and you didn't mention Central Time. You know, you've just, you've just moved on to a coastal existence. It's all right. I understand. I, I lost understand. my Kansas where accent a few years ago, too. So. <laughs> so first off, congratulations. Just a tremendous piece of work. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, I, I, I don't want to take all the credit. Trust me. I mean, I, I do want to, but I shouldn't. Uh, there was a great team behind this, uh, some really talented producers who really um, – work very hard on it, and, uh, and and as what is typically happens, the reporter gets more credit than he deserves, but as I said, willing to take. Well, the timing <laughs> was great on this, and I'm sure that this was why it came out when it did, that May right. 29th is the FIFA election. Even though there are three challengers still for Seth Blatter this time around, nobody thinks that those three have a chance. No. I don't think they think they have a chance. Yeah. Uh, so we're witnessing another coronation uh, about to take place. And Although yet, he said he wouldn't run this time. Yes, he did. Yeah. I think he said that when I was running. Full <laughs> right. disclosure here. Let's you get this out there right now. <laughs> I ran for FIFA president four years ago. Uh, did so in a uh, somewhat satirical sense, though there, there's a smile and some seriousness sure. involved. Um, and did not get a nomination from one of the FIFA nations, 209 nations around the world, though I did try. Uh, you, you had that meeting, I recall, right? And oh, yeah. There, there, some, some serious meetings were taken, yeah. and you laid out a platform, which is more than Seth Blatter has done. Uh, but, you know, Proud to these say things happen. Bla- it's, <laughs> it's hard for an American to get a leg. I'm, I'm going to just attribute it to anti-Americanism, <laughs> run amok around the world. Now, Blatter did uh, start supporting some things that I was asking for on my platform, like getting women involved in the FIFA Executive Committee for the first Mm -hmm. time, which has finally happened, Uh, like turning around and and supporting instant replay. Uh, Not not so much instant replay, I guess, goal line technology, which we've seen is a good thing. Um, But Blatter is still a very controversial figure. Um, You know, FIFA is seen in many areas as not a clean organization, Still a lot of questions about how they go about their business. Um, what did you set out to do when you started this project? Well, I, I think the mission really was, um, here is the man who is the president of FIFA. He holds the most powerful, powerful position in the world of sports. He controls the most popular event on the planet. How has he managed to maintain power for so long Despite the fact that the organization, uh, as he has run it and as he helped create it in its modern form over the last 40 years, has been almost constantly mired in scandal and accused of corruption. Uh, 
you know, I, I, I don't want to be too glib here, but, you know, Harry Truman used to say the buck stops here. And with Sepp Blatter, it is over and over and over again. Uh, and I thought you'd, you'd appreciate that Midwestern uh, reference. <laughs> um, the buck starts here. It, no matter how many members of the executive committee are implicated in scandals, no matter how many um, uh, things happen on his watch, he says, well, well, I'm not responsible for that. Now, as effectively the CEO of this organization, not just an honorary president, but the guy who is running it, how, how, do, you, how do you sit at the top for so long when all of these things happen and all these questions are raised and you take no responsibility for it? And, of course, it comes down to um, the system, uh, the structure of FIFA, and the ways in which it's allowed to operate under Swiss law. I mean, those are all important factors that I think we, we explored in the documentary. Now, how much time did you put into this? You know, I want to say we started working on it in earnest last fall. Mm -hmm. So about five or six months. For me, uh, you know, I'm doing other things at the same time. Uh, but for the producers, a lot of them, you know, kind of day to day for a long period of time. Uh, and there was some travel involved, a couple trips to Europe, long trips to Europe, which weren't, you know, terrible assignments. <laughs> Uh, there, there's some good eating to be had, particularly in Vienna, which was the site of the UEFA Congress. So right. I wasn't reluctant to do so. And Visp, where uh, Sepp Blatter is from, is just a few miles from Zermatt, uh, mm -hmm. which is at the base of the Matterhorn and is one of the most scenic Swiss um, skiing villages. Nice. So it, it wasn't tough <laughs> duty necessarily. Um, but, you know, it, it was um, some travel. And these things are expensive, as you know, to do mm -hmm. these kinds of productions. And I think... Um, just speaking in terms of the production values, it looked really it great. You know, we're working with great editors and great cameramen. Uh, and, uh, you know, so it was, a, it was a full commitment. Yeah. So how many interviews do you do on a project like this? And what percentage actually make the final cut? Well, it varies. Uh, certainly in this case, I mean, there must have been, I would say, 40 hours plus of interviews on camera. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know, with about a dozen people probably on camera. Some of those don't make the cut. Uh, I'd say most did, but mm -hmm. a handful don't. And then, uh, you know, there are a lot of meetings, there are a lot of lunches, there are a lot of dinners, you know, the kind of stuff that you do where you're just trying to understand the situation better. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing, uh, you know, we interviewed an expert on white-collar criminal uh, law here in the U.S. That was one of the last interviews we did, which was going to be in our last segment coming off of what we said about Sepp Blatter being reluctant to come to the U.S. in light of the FBI probe. Mm -hmm. And that did not make the piece. If we had more time, uh, you know, a lot more people would have made it. I mean, that's the thing. You start off and you say an hour on a 79-year-old Swiss sports executive. How are you going to fill that? <laughs> Um, but Sepp Blatter is kind of exceptional in that sense. And if anything, the hardest part about this process was deciding what not to include. Right. I don't think we even got to the point of including the stuff that he said about women should wear tighter shorts and that's mm -hmm. going to popularize the women's game. I mean, they're just, you have to prioritize, as you know. Um, and, uh, you know, I, you know, maybe there will be a director's cut soon. <laughs> Good. I'm, I'm sure, that, sure Mr. Blatter is very eager. <laughs> well, in all of this... What did you learn? Did you learn anything that surprised you? I love the fact that he was a wedding singer at one point. That surprised me. I was also un unaware of the fact that he was um, uh, the head of uh, an association that promoted the use of garter belts. 
in Switzerland, although I, I think that that was kind of a jokey thing, yeah. you know, that he did, but he was. Um, you know, it, there were little things like that in the town that he's from, Visp, I mean, uh, where we went and we spent several days, actually, and there's not a lot to do in Visp. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, that he, he rose from this place that is almost like the Lost Valley, um, you know, that time has left behind. Yeah. It's, it's a very conservative place. It's a very traditional place. Um, and you could see how his world was opened up to him when he went to work as a bellhop. You know, it's like the Grand Budapest Hotel in Zermatt. That's what I was thinking pla- of as I was watching well, this. Yeah, it, it was a conscious decision to make it look like that. Um, but, you know, you show up in Zermatt and there's this hotel and you think, this is the Grand Budapest Hotel. And he was a bellhop here, like zero. And so he, you know, he's a guy from this small town where his family's lived literally for hundreds of years in this mm-hmm. small town. And the buildings have bladder on it and there were bishops of this valley who were bladders, et cetera. But, you know, the rich and the famous would come to these hotels in Zermatt and he would see them and he would presumably get tips from them and help them to their rooms and you yeah. can see how the world would open up to him through those experiences yeah no it's fascinating early on in the presentation we meet a woman named Phaedra Al-Majid mm-hmm. pretty much right off the bat yeah who was part of Qatar 22 and their big committee was fired mm-hmm. um, with another year and a half or so left to go two years maybe um, and uh, she talks to you about having personally witnessed bribes, yeah. attempts, and and yes answers from uh, I think it was all three of the African FIFA executive committee members. Yes, at a meeting in Luanda, Angola, uh, in early 2010, and we were not the first people. Obviously, she has told this story too. Uh, and after she initially told this story, she, well, it's interesting. She told the story, uh, and the story was presented without attribution in a number of places, including the British Parliament. Then, when she was outed and named, she retracted it. She says, under threat by the Qataris, that they were going to sue her for violating her non disclosure agreement, which uh, is in effect what happened, and there is a judgment against her for a million dollars for violating her NDA. She says, um, but then she retracted her retraction. And, you know, fair questions to be asked, certainly, about the credibility of someone who, who changes their story twice. Um, ultimately, we found Phaedra credible. Um, and I think most people who have dealt with her, I, I don't want to generalize, but I guess I am, uh, most have found her credible. And, and the people she's worked with in law enforcement, um, people she's worked with in journalism uh, have, have taken her at her, at her word. Um, and it's, it's hard to see. I mean, certainly she hasn't um, benefited much from, from what she has had to say. Yeah, and, and we were talking off air before we came on here, and I was telling you my own Phaedra story that I had uh, interviewed her for, for three hours back in early uh, 2011, a month after the those World Cups were awarded controversially, including to Qatar. Uh, we spoke for three hours at a Starbucks in Tyson's Corner outside of Washington, D.C., and um, she had mentioned some of this stuff, and I was starting to report on a story, and then came out all the stuff you talk about with her withdrawing it and saying publicly that 
you know, that wasn't true, but it, it always seeming very fishy that she would do that the way she did right. and then coming back. Uh, it's, it's fascinating. And this is a world, as you know well, that you got to do a lot of reporting and, and, and talk to as many people as possible. Like, what, what does her experience say, though, in regards to Set Blatter? What do we learn about Set Blatter through her? Well, I think it, it really all goes back to the fact that Sepp Blatter was perceived by those who perceived him at all uh, as someone who sat at the top of this organization that had been mired in scandal and corruption for so long. But it was kind of a, oh, what's the big deal? You know, it's, it's soccer, so they're going to put the World Cup here instead of there, et cetera. Uh, so he says these wacky things about women in sports and uh, seems out of touch and seems like a Neanderthal sometimes, but but kind of seemed harmless. Mm -hmm. And then I think Qatar changed the narrative because uh, it wasn't one of those things that was second-guessed. It was immediately guessed. When, when, when Qatar won on December 2nd, 2010, the rights to host the 2022 World Cup, people said all over the world, what is what is going on? How does that make any sense? This country is smaller than Connecticut. It's got fewer people than, I think, like Rochester. So, you know, it's got like 200,000 citizens, maybe 300,000 at most. Uh, and a history of these terrible human rights violations, the way that it treats migrant workers, particularly uh, the construction workers from South Asia. How could they possibly have a World Cup there in the summertime? You can't walk outside in the summertime. Right. The technical committee said you can't do it. That was all overridden. So, so it became, it, it, it's a tipping point, uh, December 2nd, 2010. And so you say, well, how did they get it? And then you have, then you're led to Phaedra. And you're led then to Sepp Blatter because he's the guy who the buck should stop with, right. who, who has been at FIFA, as, as we know, for 40 years, uh, who, who can't just say, hey, these are you know, rogue members of the executive committee. You know, like, people end up on the executive committee to a large extent because of Sepp Blatter. Right. They get awarded committee positions because of Sepp Blatter. They're empowered. Their national federations are empowered by Sepp Blatter. It, it, it's the way the system works and has worked for a long time. So if that's how FIFA operates under Sepp Blatter, even if he doesn't spe have specific knowledge of these bribes, uh, it, it, it does go back to him in a way. Well, and he certainly didn't go out of his way to protect a potential whistleblower. Far from it. Uh, she says, Phaedra, that, that he essentially outed her yeah. um, and uh, showed no real interest in hearing her story and has never met with her. Um, you know, when, when you talk to reasonable people, it's, it's not just Phaedra, of course, uh, who has made these accusations. It's part of a pattern. If it were just Phaedra right. and this was the cleanest organization in the history of the world, and she had this story and she retracted and brought it back, um, I think there would be more justified skepticism. You always want to be skeptical, but even more. I mean, Lord David Treisman, you know, who you know, was the head of the FA, right? He, he's, he's the head of England's bid. He testified in Parliament that four executive committee members came to him asking for bribes right. to, give, to vote for England for 2018. So none of this is happening in a vacuum. So here's my question then, because and this ties directly to 
this vote for, especially Qatar getting World Cup 22, is if the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, had its Salt Lake City moment where it was very clear that this was an unclean organization in a public way, and generally people feel like the IOC has improved on things since then. Well, why wasn't this FIFA's Salt Lake City moment? Why haven't they appeared to reform at all? Well, you probably know the answer better than I do, having worked with them a lot more. They are um, simply more resistant to change uh, systemically. Um, They reject a lot of the evidence that we can see on its face that there's been wrongdoing going on for a long time. And and kind of hide in this cocoon where you say, you know, this is the way we do things. We don't care how the rest of the world does things. We don't really, uh, you know, we've got a good governance committee, something like that. But you saw in our piece, we spoke to Michael Hirschman, who, who is one of the leading experts in the world on, on ethics, good governance. He's brought in by multinationals all over the world, by governments all over right. the world to clean things up. And he said FIFA's the most dysfunctional organization he's ever seen right. in that regard. Um, so, so there's the culture, but there's also the fact that Salt Lake City took place in the United States. Right. So there was a federal investigation. Um, there was a criminal uh, investigation against the people who had facilitated those bribes and paying for tuition and all that stuff, as best I recall, mm-hmm. back in uh, you know the years before those games were to take place, before Mitt Romney came in and cleaned mm-hmm. it up uh, or fixed it. Um, so... It was all thrown out into the open in the context of this federal probe, yeah. and and there were serious criminal repercussions. Although I think ultimately there were acquittals in those cases, it, it certainly uh, damaged the mm-hmm. reputation of the IOC, and it kind of forced uh, a rethinking of the way it did business. We haven't seen that happen in FIFA. Well, I look at what is happening, um, and this ties in also with what you reported in your piece that uh, a source had told you that Seth Blatter has thought it unwise to set foot on U.S. soil as long as this FBI investigation is taking place. Now, what did you know about this? How did you come across this? Well... You know, it's hard. Obviously, we didn't name our sources, uh, multiple sources. So I wouldn't want to get too deep into the specifics of it. Uh, but but let me put it this way. Um, we know that there's a federal probe going on and has been for several years. Sepp Blatter is aware that there's a federal probe going on, which he acknowledged for the first time just a few days yeah. ago after our show ran. Uh, we know that Chuck Blazer who was a very important figure in FIFA for a long time, the highest-ranking American in the organization, has been cooperating. Um, So if you were advising Sepp Blatter and you suspected, uh, and you may even know if you talked to the prosecutors, that FIFA is um, being probed, uh, that he may be personally being probed, and he doesn't have to be in the United States, why would you risk going to the United States when you, know, you could be served with a grand jury subpoena or there might be a sealed indictment and a sealed arrest warrant? And I'm not saying that those things have happened right. or are going to happen. What we said was that he's decided it would be unwise to come to the U.S. because of these possibilities. 
um, and we stand by that. Well, and, and just based on when he has been here in the U.S., uh, Paul Carr, the terrific yeah, stats I got, guy. I asked ESPN. Paul to look into it because yeah. uh, he had made a habit, uh, Sepp Blatter, of coming to the U.S. quite frequently mm-hmm. uh, in all the years after he became president. Uh, he was at the Gold Cup, which takes place essentially every other year, as you know better than I, but uh, there was one exception to that. So I guess there were seven... Before the FBI probe was initiated, there had been seven Gold Cups in the U.S. since Sepp Blatter became president, and he had been to all seven. Since the probe was first announced, uh, he hasn't been... He didn't come in 2013, and he's already said he's not coming in 2015. That doesn't prove anything, but it certainly suggests something. Yeah, uh, and I always remember him being at those Gold Cups, you know? And, and it was a little odd, actually, in 2011 at the Gold Cup because he didn't come to the final. He came to the semifinal, right. was very low profile in Houston. I, my research suggests to me that that was the last time he was on American soil. It was June of 2011 at the Gold Cup semis. In That's what we think, too, now. Is it possibly he flew over on a private jet or a commercial jet? He had lunch with somebody, and we don't know about it. Right. It is, but FIFA has not been responsive to questions about whether Sepp Blatter has been in the U.S. since 2011. And in fact, I said to them, it seems like we, we can't find any instances of his being here since 2011, and they wouldn't answer yes or no if that's true. So what should we make of this FBI investigation? Because I've seen it now in, in a lot of media reports. Blatter himself has now come out publicly and confirmed the existence mm-hmm. of an investigation I've talked to people at the FBI who, in an on-the-record sense, have no desire to go anywhere right. near this thing right. right now. There was a long New York Daily News piece about Chuck Blazer's role in turning... turning states' evidence. Basically, turning states' evidence uh, with a lot of colorful language, uh, as you would expect. Everything in, about in Chuck America. is colorful. Yes. Um, Parrots. Cats. <laughs> Moped. <laughs> I would suggest reading the New York Daily But I, I don't want to be too glib. Chuck Blazer, you know, is very ill. True. Um, and the Daily News reported that. And, and I mean, that's uh, common knowledge. Right. Um, he's been very sick. He's been in and out of the hospital, in and out of um, treatment. And he, his ability to fully participate in the probe uh, is, a, is a question right now. But we've been seeing these media reports now basically since 2011 that, mm-hmm. okay, the FBI is doing this investigation into soccer politicians. Might just be CONCACAF, might be CONCACAF and FIFA. You know, maybe Blatter is on this. We don't know. Um, at what point does the FBI need to show something? Well, that's a good question. And I posed that question to the white-collar criminal defense attorney um, who, who I mentioned earlier, posted to some other lawyers, I think, in the course of conversations, people who are familiar uh, with the investigation. Um, there are a few things to bear in mind. Uh, the vote took place on December 2nd, 2010, right. um, which awarded the World Cups in 2018-2022 to Russia and Qatar, respectively. That might mean that the statute of limitations runs out on December 2nd, 2015. Uh, uh, if we're assuming that... Whatever they're investigating, they're investigating under the auspices of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. The statute of limitations is five years. So it's probably December 2nd, 2015. Hmm. There are some exceptions. There are ways in which uh, the statute of limitations can be extended. Hmm. 
Mm. Uh, for instance, if there was any criminal act, if any act was um, took place in furtherance of the crime beyond that, even if the main action, which means the vote, was December 2nd, you know, there, there are all kinds of examples, but um, that puts a bigger burden on the government because not only are they going to have to prove that they have a case in the first place, but they have to, you know, meet this other um, requirement that they can prove that there was some furtherance of the criminal conspiracy or the criminal whatever it was beyond that date. So it would seem to suggest that we are coming to something of a head with this, and we have six months plus before that deadline. Uh, As I said, there are ways that the statute of limitations can be extended. Uh, You know, we have these these, uh, treaties with other governments where they're supposed to cooperate with our investigations and vice versa. Mm -hmm. If we meet a certain amount of resistance, if they are not forthcoming, uh, the feds can go to a judge and say, you know, you have to keep the clock ticking because mm-hmm. they haven't delivered things to us in a timely manner. So there are all kinds of ways around it, um, but it certainly makes it much easier for the government. Uh, it doesn't give them another case to have to go prove if it falls within the statute of limitations. And the reason I've pursued kind of this line is because there are very few things in the world that I think make FIFA and Blatter scared. Right. You know? Right. Um, you know, Negative public opinion in, in large <laughs> sections of the world doesn't seem to be no. part of that up you know. No. And, or in England. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so then it comes down to FIFA sponsors, which, the, you know, the World Cup still just prints money. Right. And so... And their feeling, I think, frankly, is that, okay, so... And I'm just throwing out an example, you know. Mm-hmm. Coca-Cola leaves us, Pepsi's dying again in right. with us. Right, And so that doesn't seem to be an issue for FIFA, the Swiss government, potentially, which at this point in time doesn't seem to be really causing FIFA any concerns. No, but that um, might change. I mean, there is a movement afoot in Switzerland to uh, change FIFA's official status. Uh, and we spoke, as you saw, to one of the Swiss parliamentarians who's yeah, leading that, that movement, which, which really would make it more accountable, would force it to be more transparent. Um, Right now, as he, uh, I thought, memorably told us, it has the same status as a yodeling association, (laughs) um, despite the billions that it brings in, and doesn't have to account for itself to anyone. So, and I think the movement is gaining traction in Switzerland because FIFA, in some ways, and this is quoting Roland Buchel, this isn't just me, Mm -hmm. is an embarrassment to Switzerland. Uh, Switzerland has tried to change its image in the last 20 years. This isn't a place where you could just go and hide your ill-gotten gains anymore. The secrecy laws have been changed. Uh, There's more cooperation with foreign governments trying to find money that has been hidden in Switzerland uh, that has been um, ill-gotten. And FIFA, I think, in some ways represents the bad old Switzerland. And in the interconnected universe in which we now live, uh, a lot of Swiss don't like it. So what is U.S. soccer's role in all of this? Because if you go back a long time, U.S. soccer has supported Seth Blatter, has Mm -hmm. voted for him in all of these presidential elections at FIFA. Now this year, interestingly, U.S. soccer president Sunil Gulati nominates a different guy, Prince Ali from Jordan, who's one of the guys running against Blatter. Why is this happening, and, and what, what should U.S. soccer be doing? What's your sense of U.S. soccer's role? 
Well, I think the fact of the matter is that, you know, we've talked about the system. We've talked about the problems, uh, which I thought uh, Guido Tagnoni uh, summed up quite uh, succinctly in our, in our show that in many parts of the world, these countries are doing well by FIFA these very small member states that in a proportional democracy would not do as well. The United States obviously would do much better if it were uh, one man per vote, uh, one woman per vote, however you want to put it, as opposed to one member association per vote. Uh, So the U.S., it certainly would behoove the U.S. if the system were uh, more democratic, um, if it were more transparent, Obviously, there was a tremendous amount of disappointment. The U.S. lost out to Qatar, 22. Um, And I think by nominating Prince Ali, obviously, Sunil Gulati is signaling uh, his feelings that things must change. I think at the same time, Sunil's a smart guy. He knows that under Sepp Blatter, um, or I should say that Sepp Blatter is likely to be reelected, and that might mean some kind of repercussions for the U.S. But, but, it, but it's very hard to affect change, uh, you know, in this organization. And uh, Sepp Blatter doesn't have to care any more about what Sunil Gulati says than he does about the guy who runs the Federation in Andorra, whose name I don't know, <laughs> or the guy who runs the Federation in Montserrat. You know, that's, it's funny because, you know, you, you deal with this all the time more than I do. But when you walk, you talk to people about the problems with FIFA and the way that it's structured and the way that it works, everybody loves to throw out Montserrat, right? right. Because it's not even a country. Uh, you know, it's a member of CONCACAF. It's a British overseas territory. It's right. not in the United Nations. It's not in the Olympics, I believe. It, the only multinational organization, you know, global organization, which it's a full-fledged member, is FIFA. FIFA. And it's got fewer than 6,000 people on it, okay? I mean, there are more people in the office buildings around us right now within a, what, two-block radius right right now in midtown Manhattan than live in Montserrat. But they share fully in World Cup profits. Right. And they share fully in the electoral process. And uh, you might think that's fair, or you might think that it would be more fair if Germany or Brazil had more say than Montserrat. So here's a question for you, because back when the vote was USA versus Qatar for the 2022 World Cup in the final round, everybody tells me, even though it's still technically secret, that Sepp Blatter voted for the U.S. against Qatar. Still ended up being 14 to 8 Qatar. Now, I've had plenty of arguments with people, some who think that Blatter didn't really support the U.S., but wanted to have plausible deniability because he knew Qatar was going to win anyway. Some people telling me that he never wanted the World Cup to be in Qatar. And that actually he he never really acknowledged that because he didn't want to show that he didn't really have the power to sway a vote. And I've heard the same things. And and we just don't know Um, whether it was truly cynical they're going to win anyway, so I don't have to vote for them. This is a foregone conclusion. Or uh, I don't want Qatar to win, but once after Qatar won the vote in December and then Mohammed bin Hammam says he's running for president, he's from Qatar, and he'd been instrumental despite what the Qataris say uh, with Qatar winning the bid, um, that then they become he becomes a threat to his presidency, perhaps a legitimate threat, and then to get him out of the race – uh, he cuts a deal with the Qataris and says, 
I got no problem with this now, right. as long as you know Muhammad goes away. Um, you know, that that is the theory of uh, Heidi Blake and Jonathan Calvert, who've written the book The Ugly Game, who we interviewed for the documentary, mm-hmm. and who've done a lot of good reporting in the the Sunday Times. Uh, who did a lot of good reporting in the Sunday Times. Heidi's moved on to BuzzFeed UK. Um, But, you know, (laughs) ultimately, uh, you know, the fact that um, it could be either of those things (laughs) says a lot about Sepp Blatter. No, of course. Um, You didn't get him to sit down with you. No, not even close. Now, I assume that what you showed in the video is as close as you got. That's as like close as I got physically. <laughs> yeah, in Vienna. In Vienna, right up to the table. And, you know, look, you know, are we get ambush. You got, this isn't an ambush situation, right. you know, where it's like there's one big question. You know, did you do it? You know, um, that wouldn't do anybody any good. That would right. just be um, grandstanding, I would think. Not that I haven't done some of that in the past. Uh, <laughs> I And I meant ambushing. Um but, you know, we tried very sincerely. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing we would have liked more. And I've sat down with him before. Okay. Once we had a real sit down uh, prior to the 2006 World Cup okay. uh, t- when we were doing a big piece about racism in soccer and FIFA's efforts uh, or lack of efforts, depending on how you saw it, to, to clamp down. Um, but I had I was not surprised at all because we had the exact same experience last year when we were doing the Qatar expose. Mm-hmm. You know, here is a very legitimate issue that the president of FIFA should address. Your event, the World Cup, the biggest event in the world, is going to Qatar. Everything there is being built by these laborers who have been described as... 21st century slaves. What are your obligations to them? What are your obligations uh, in terms of applying pressure to reform the system there? I don't think anybody would say these are unreasonable things to ask of the FIFA president. And and, I mean, I know that he sees it differently and FIFA sees it differently, but he is in charge of, this is a public trust. This is the world's game. and we got absolutely no traction with our request. Now, I'm not so egotistical to think, oh, hey, we're knocking on door, you, our, your door. You've got to come to us. It wasn't like, you know, we, we gave them months and months and months. Yeah. And, you know, they wouldn't do it. And that's their prerogative. But, um, you know, I, I, I think uh, at a certain level, I do think there is an obligation to talk about these things when you're, in a sense, responsible for the lives of so many and the conditions under which so many other people are working. Well, and their unwillingness to talk about it sends a very specific message in its own right. Yeah. Um, That they're uncomfortable talking about it and that they just don't feel they have to. So what would you have asked him? About? If you'd sat down with Oh, boy, all of this. Um, Well, you know, I, I mean... I'd ask him a lot about being a bellhop in Zermatt and what he learned from that experience and from being a wedding singer. Um, but specifically, you know, you saw we spoke to Leonard Johansson, yeah. who very easily could have been elected president in 1998. And I think we would have a very different FIFA today, probably, if he had been. Um, certainly that election. Um, the Al Gore FIFA. Exactly. Um <laughs> Although, uh, and, I, and I guess you could say, you know, was Mohammed bin Hammam was the James Baker. Uh, <laughs> but, then, you know, um, but I don't want to talk about a Princeton guy like that. Um, um, 
you know, I would have asked him, what, you know, 98, what do you know? But even Guido Tognoni, who was his closest advisor and, and I thought gave us a very candid and interesting oh, yeah. interview, you know, said, well, Sepp can say he didn't buy anything. It was bought for him. He didn't have to get his hands dirty. But going back to that, go back to ISL. What did he know about Havelange, about the money Havelange, his boss, had taken from ISL? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, what has he known about all of these things that have happened over the years? How, how has he managed to consolidate power for so long? Um, you know, the, the fact that um, he hasn't even laid out a platform. He's declined to debate the other candidates this time. Um, it would have been a long list that I would have perfected, and I, I hope I would have done it better than I just did. No, it was good. <laughs> um, as far as the politics of it, this election coming up, do you think this will be Blatter's last four-year term? Oh, boy. Look, he's 79 which we've said a number of times. I don't want to come off as ageist. How old is he? <laughs> 79. Uh, look, I, I don't think that anybody who knows him would say that if he's healthy four years from now and he's feeling good, that he wouldn't run again. I mean, he's told us before that he won't run. That was one of the sources of frustration for Mohammed bin Hammam that, uh, you know, according to some people, he'd been led to believe that eventually he could, Blatter would transition out and bin Hammam would take over. Um, He's promised before that he won't run again, and he's broken those promises. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. You know, I, I think he's like one of those football coaches, you know, like Bear Bryant. He walked away, and he was dead very shortly thereafter. Mm-hmm. Joe Paterno was forced out of the job and was um, gone very shortly thereafter. I'm not sure that Sepp Blatter uh, would know what to do with himself without being the president of FIFA. And why walk away? It's a great job. It is a great job. As you well know. $500 a day per diem just for like a just, FIFA Just the per diem, right, exactly. Now, bear in mind, he is paid, I, I, we think about 10% of what Roger Goodell, what he gets paid. Okay. Um, but he doesn't have to spend money on anything. Yeah, yeah. Um, lastly, what kind of response have you gotten since this first aired, both from the public and maybe even from people inside FIFA? Yeah, it, it, the response has been overwhelming and certainly not what I, I anticipated. Um, you know, you do these things, and even if you have some inkling about how people are going to respond, or it's good, you know, you sit down and you interview Plaxico Burst or something the first time after he's shot, you know that people are going to talk about it. This, I really didn't know if it was going to strike a chord with people, but surprisingly it did. And I, I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that you were tweeting about it. <laughs> um, um, you know, and I think there was kind of this almost grassroots response. And that was one of the objectives at the beginning. You know, we said to ourselves, you know, we're starting this project. You never know at the beginning whether you're going to get anything that's actually new or different. And and you hope you do. And and I think we did to some extent. But a lot of it is just the accretion of detail. This stuff has been out there, as you know, for a long time. But it hadn't been presented this way. Mm -hmm. Look Look at this whole body of work. Look at everything that has happened. Look at who this guy is, what this organization has been uh, with him at the top or near the top over the last 40 years. And so people um, at some level understood FIFA, Bladder, uh, it's a little shady. Um, But when they saw it like this, I think it kind of took people aback. Yeah. Jeremy Schaaf, thanks for joining us. Terrific work to you and the team you work with. Thank you so much, Mr. Wall.
Do you know about the Locked On Podcast Network, the number one daily sports podcast network? Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.